Oh, yeah, wonderful. Once again, as we often say today, once again, the opportunity for boys and girls to be learning the Word of God. I'm, I am blessed by each of these teachers, the enthusiasm. Miss Jody is taking Pathfinders today. Bye-bye, Pathfinders. You all say, hello, Miss Jody. We thank you, Miss Jody. Uh, it's such a blessing I, just seeing each of you that are sharing in this kids' ministry um, time. It, your, your dedication to make those classes very special for every child means so much to us. And um, in this adventure, we are totally, totally blessed by the lights coming on in the eyes of children. So as I mentioned too a couple of other times for our water baptism two weeks from today, again, at the conclusion of our 26th Sunday, the 26th service, we'll be having the water baptism. And I'm, I'm mindful that some people have questions and want to know, what does it really mean to put my whole trust in Christ? What is the significance of the water baptism? How does that relate to my walk with God? All those things. So we had a great time sharing that with our adult uh, orientation and, and our kids' night um, for one. And we're so blessed for that, this child and any other young person that has that question. I want to invite you to open to Colossians today, Colossians chapter 1. And I left you last Sunday in the first of a, a series I call Snapshot Series. This is Snapshots in Colossians. And it gives us what I pray is a fresh perspective on something that all of us find ourselves needing in different times in our lives. And that is to see the completeness, the totality the overall beauty and magnitude of what Christ has done for us through his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. And one of the reasons that we so need it is reflected in how I left you last Sunday. When we concluded last Sunday, we were looking at that 23rd verse, and you might want to find that in that first chapter of Colossians, that 23rd verse that uses the phrase, the faith, that we not be moved away from the faith of the gospel. And if, if you were here last Sunday, you know we were concluding on, on just drawing a distinction that is really foundational today to what we'll be talking about as we look at what it means to be free to believe, how the completion, completeness and totality of what Jesus has done for us sets us free. It sets us free to believe and it sets us free to grow well. And when I say grow well, I mean that in kind of a dual way, a double entendre, that um, we grow well by grasping what Christ has done for us, but we also grow into wellness. There is a wellness of heart, mind, soul, and body that is a part of uh, the totality of, of how we are to walk in this world, to, to be aware of what Christ has done for us and those benefits in our lives. To be free to believe, as we look at this snapshot in Colossians, to begin with verse 23 of chapter 1, I think it's good to see, first of all, that this distinction I left you with is a vital part of why we are want to take a snapshot today at one of the most profound paragraphs in all of the New Testament. It's verses 15 to 19, and that's the heart of our message today. So before we get there, I want us to see why. Why do we need this? It's probably one of the most sublime and profound sections of Scripture related to the person and redeeming work of Christ. 
And the reason, if you look at that 23rd verse again, is that there is a difference, as we said last week, between a significant difference between my faith and the faith. So, again, to draw that distinction, would you simply shout out a word with me, a single word, faith. Just say, faith. Now say, the faith. The faith. Now, the difference may not seem significant on the surface, but the, that, the, the difference that we see reflected in uh, Colossians 1.23 is highly significant because it shows us the difference in what I think of as the subjective part of our Christian walk and the objective part. And another way to put it would be the internal, the internal experience of faith in my life is one thing, but the solid foundation, the immovable rock of what Christ has done for me is a separate issue. They're related, of course, but often in our Christian lives, we get tangled up in the subjective realm, and we're so aware of our feelings and our immediate cognizance of what's happening either in our church or in our personal life or in our surroundings that we can literally, and this is a very understandable human tendency, it is a very real human tendency, and it is, a, it is deeply embedded in our emotional structure. And that is that we can fall into the danger of elevating our feelings and beginning to equate them with the voice of the Holy Spirit. Here's how it happens sometimes. I've known people that could liter would literally say that the anointing of the Holy Spirit wasn't there because they didn't feel anything. To, to begin to elevate my feelings to the realm of the voice of God, or the power of the Holy Spirit, is a severe error. Now, it's, a, it's an understandable error. We, we fall into it. Why do we fall into it? Because we're humans, right? But the difference, this statement in verse 23, and I want you to see it again in your own Bible, that we not be moved away. If you continue in your faith, establish and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So the, the significance of the faith, the hope, the ground, the anchor, the foundation of what Christ has done for us is accented here. Uh, it parallels uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, where the Apostle Paul says, No other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Christ crucified, risen, and exalted. So the reason it's significant to me is, when I start thinking about uh, what the book of Colossians means to me, which is really a lot, one of the things that comes to my mind is an illustration of a surgeon with a scalpel. Now, there are many different ways that we could see uh, the distinction in the message of Colossians, let's say from Ephesians, but one way that's helpful to me is to think of it as a surgeon with a scalpel, that a wise and well-trained surgeon would use a scalpel or other, other instruments very, very carefully controlled, very carefully cleaned, very carefully kept, so that with a scalpel he might remove a tumor that would enable health to be restored to a patient. And that tumor would be most likely very tiny and yet have 
very, very serious long-term ramifications. In a way, I see the epistle to the Colossians as a spiritual scalpel that is strategically aimed at removing an error that was becoming influential in the Colossian church and the surrounding region, and by addressing that error in a very skillful and strategically direct way, relating the answer to the eternal power and glory of the cosmic Christ, Paul not only cured that church and those churches from a direction that could have stolen the vitality of their faith, but he also, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, assured that this would be a part of equipping believers through the centuries to understand this distinctive facts of Christ's eternal person and work. And the key word in the entire epistle of the Colossians is the word completion. We are complete in him, chapter 2, verse 10 says. So we have this picture of what it means to trust in Christ as the source of the faith. Why? Because I know my faith internally, my response to God, is going to fluctuate and vary over my life. Amen? And part of the adventure of growing as a follower of Jesus is for our faith, the internal faith that each of us express to God, to grow, to get stronger, to get more mature, to get more focused. And yet, if we lose sight of the faith, the foundation that never changes, we'll find ourselves often slipping into that temptation to equate my faith with my feelings. So that's the human 21st century 2022 version of the problem. The problem that Paul was addressing is a bit more complex. It's called the Gnostic heresy, Gnostic with a silent G on the front of that word. And uh, we're going to come back to that and give a little bit more insight next week on why it was so significant and the impact it had. But, but it's really vital to first realize that the good news of Jesus Christ in which we are set free to believe God, to put our trust in God, to grow in our faith, fallible though our faith may be, is vital to distinguish between my internal experience of faith and the solid rock, unchangeable foundation of what God has done in Christ that never changes. When we see that distinction, we can take a deep breath and step back from the crazy subjectivism of our contemporary Christian culture and get on the high vista of a, of a bright, clear view of God's cosmic plan for the body of Christ to be brought out of darkness into his marvelous light, given redemption through faith in his blood, and then presented to God as sons and daughters of the living God. There is a value, in other words, in getting the 30,000-foot view perspective, so to speak, looking at this from the standpoint of what Christ has done for us. And of course, the reason for that is in this wonderful pregnant phrase in the middle of verse 14. Again, your chapter 1, verse 14. And just read this phrase aloud with me here from that 14th verse. Redemption through his blood. 
redemption through his blood. Now that word signals for us as we go into this really powerful section about the person of Christ, that word signals for us why it's essential that every child of God understand where he or she stands, what it means to have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, and what assures you that nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. What is that that will assure you of that? Being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's the very thing that John the Baptist proclaimed when Jesus came along to that, uh, that Jordan side baptism service that, that John, the guy in the crazy clothes and the weird diet, was conducting down there by the Jordan River. And when Jesus appeared and he recognized the Messiah, he pointed at him in John 1.29 and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All those water baptisms in that Jordan River were a, uh, a tangible visual illustration of the washing, the redeeming, the cleansing, the newness of life that would come only because of the living lamb, only because of the one singular person, the only one who had ever existed, who because he eternally existed as son of God and entered into this world for the mission of redemption and took upon himself human flesh and bore our sin to Calvary's cross because of his redeeming blood we can have that newness of life and friend today no matter how long you've walked with God no matter how many struggles you've had it is also because of his cleansing blood that you can be a believer that you can be a bold believer that you can be an active believer that you can be a growing believer that you can be a well believer you can be a confident believer. You can be a believer on the edge of looking to the next thing God's going to do in your life. And we can be tempted to say, yeah, but I don't feel it sometimes. I attend a small church where there's not as many people singing out loud. I'm not feeling the worship. <laughs> Woo, hallelujah. You're spooked. No, God's grace has poured something into us when we're here where the, when there's 30 29 of us or 59 or 5,009. God's grace is not limited by the amount of people present in the service. We all want more, of course. But we, it, Colossians is one of those books that anchors us in the, what the old scholars called the eternal verities. I like that phrase, the eternal verities. Verity, based in that uh, Latin word for veritas, for what is true, what is, what is always dependable what you could always count on so when you think of this redemption by faith in the blood of Jesus then it leads us into this uh, section and I'd like you to see this section first before we do a little more background on it go to Colossians 1:15, where we see this he says now because of this redemptive plan of God through salvation that it is God's intent that we experience the redemption through the blood of Christ, which is the forgiveness of sins. And what do we need to know to believe that? Well, in your Bible, NIV, read along, follow along as I read 15 to 19. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created 
through him and for him. We just pause there and think about this, that one of the declarations of this text is that all of the vast expanse of the universe and all of its complexity and wonder and all of the indescribably sublime beauty of, of the most magnificent acts of creation, all were accomplished through the person of Christ the Son. And the, and the splendor of it all is a witness to the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is, all things have been created through him and for him. And as a starting point for worshipers, couldn't we say, if that's true, how much more should our praise and worship, both on a Sunday morning and any time during the week, how much more should it be something reflecting in our heart? God, you created all things through the... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you created all things that you may be glorified. The very least I can do is give you the glory, do your name, through my feeble praises. Through some song I sing, through some expression of my heart, that I say, Lord God, you were the word from the beginning as we sang today. How beautiful is your name. And just those, those simple expressions are part of us responding to these truths. And the vital thing to know is that these truths are objectively true no matter how your feelings are doing that day. It is one of those launching pads for a really radical change of perspective. And then the text goes on, 17 to 19. Christ, the Son, is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Simple takeaway from that for each of us today. Today, Jesus is supreme. Today, Jesus reigns supremely over your circumstances. Today, Jesus reigns and must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. As 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 26 tells us, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we can say confidently together, Lord God, thank you. Thank you that you are supreme and that in your supreme authority, we know that the church derives its significance. And then verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Now we'll stop the reading there just to think about this. If you get the connection between verse 14 and verse 20, we have the word redemption in verse 14. Let's say that one aloud again from the screen. Redemption through his blood. And then in verse 20, we have the word reconcile. That is, he did everything necessary to eliminate all of the reasons for the radical gap between sinful hearts and a holy God. And in the blood of the cross, he did a reconciling work so that those all of us who by virtue of our sinfulness could never even approach the presence of God, much less talk to a holy God without disintegrating under the gaze of his splendor. And yet Christ in the cross 
shed his blood, creating the full reconciliation so that we could belong to him. So the first thing I want to give you today as a takeaway is to be free to believe, is to know that you, by the redemption of the blood of Christ, belong to the one who is the image of the invisible God. And by whom and for whom and through whom all things were created. And not only that, but verse 17 says, not only was this a historical and cosmic fact, but it is a continuing, powerful, present tense assurance that in Christ Jesus now, present tense, verse 17, all things are held together. The, the, the Greek expression there corresponds to the concept of coherence that we use would be used in, a, in the sense of physics. There is a cohesiveness in the universe that is attributable to the person of Christ. And this cohesiveness is reflected in the complexity and the beauty of what he has created in spite of the damage that sinful human beings have done to planet Earth and to human experience. The complexity and the beauty and the diversity of all that God has created is reflected in not only its eternal cosmic accomplishment in infinitely impossible to remember or, or understand history for us, and yet in the present tense is continuing to be kept. And the, the book ends on this, this cosmic and beautiful passage about the person of Christ is the redemption in his blood, verse 14, the reconciliation through his blood, verse 20. And to put those together helps us realize that all of these magnificent cosmic truths that we read in verse 15 through 19 are aimed to help us realize the value of belonging to the risen, exalted, and eternally reigning king. That is, you belong. You're free to believe because your believing is not dependent on how great your faith is. Your faith is simply the response of your heart to the magnitude of who he is. Charles Spurgeon used to try to wrestle with that truth 145 or so years ago, struggling with how can people understand the difference in the faith and my faith. And he coined it, he used illustrations that were current of his time. Of course, the, the telephone was just in its earliest phases beginning to, uh, to become available in that part of England. And, and um, uh, Spurgeon would refer to it as, my faith is the wire that connects me to the voice. My faith is the trembling hand that reaches out to receive the golden gift. That is, the emphasis in Scripture is not on the greatness of my faith because my heart is not a faith factory. My heart can't manufacture faith. The genuine faith I need is a faith that comes from my heart as the Holy Spirit ignites within me in a recognition of the magnitude of who he is. He is, one, as, one, as, as one brother said many years ago, uh, we're, we're all in the kingdom of God. We're like, um, we're like happy, satisfied beggars who are showing other beggars where to find bread. There's this, there's this recognition of the flimsy and fallibility, flimsiness and fallibility and fluctuations of my own faith when we recognize the magnitude of the faith in him. So again, you're free to believe. Why? Because you belong to the king whose shed blood accomplished your complete redemption, your complete deliverance. And the completion 
And the confidence that you can trust him is not in your ability to believe, but it is in the growing recognition of your heart of the magnitude of who he is. In uh, 1996, around the Christmas season, the Parade magazine, that little common insert that was in newspapers so often years ago, Parade magazine reported on an unusual find off the coast of Sweden a couple of years before that, probably around 1994. An engagement ring had fallen into the sea off the west coast of Sweden, and yet this engagement ring dropped into the waters of the ocean, had found its way back to its owner. A mussel had swallowed the ring, and a Swedish fisherman named Peter Carlson had found that ring in sorting out his catch. Well, Peter Carlson was able to locate the owner of the ring because Agneta Winkstead, the owner, had her name, her, I'm sure her fiancé, had her name inscribed in that engagement ring. And Carlson found her, looked her up, and searched her out and got her engagement ring back to her. The only reason that could happen is because the engraving of ownership, the engraving of love, the proof of belonging was engraved in the very metal of that ring. We could say today that for all of us, lost though we are in ourselves, that it is because of the redeeming blood of Jesus that we can read in verse 15 that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, and we can say, I belong to him. Yes, this is the one I belong to. But let's think about a little bit why this text was so important and go back in your Bible to Acts chapter 19. And just notice with me, if you would, that this is a place in uh, the book of Acts where in Acts 19 verse 10 where the Apostle Paul had been expanding the ministry of the gospel throughout the region of Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 19, we read the text that Paul the Apostle had been bringing the gospel to people through this time of missionary expansion in the second missionary journey. And the Bible tells us that while at Ephesus, the power of this great message of what it means to belong to Christ was so influential and so well received that all who dwelt in Asia, and this is an unusual use of a word here, heard the word of the Lord Jesus. Now, there is a place called Asia now, which is in a totally different part of the world. It's not the Asia. And there's a whole region called Asia Minor, which is a part of that of the region that's now Turkey in that time. But this Asia is not even that. This Asia is a smaller province within Asia Minor. And this refers to the region between Ephesus and Colossae. All the word of the Lord spread, and that entire region received the word of the Lord. It also tells us in Acts 19, verse 17, that fear fell on them all. There was an awareness, there was an awesomeness, there was this um, acute sense of the magnitude of God doing something far beyond what any human brain could have conceived. And there was a holy fear, a, a hush of fear, there, an awe that came upon them. And then a summary verse in verse 20 of Acts 19 says, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Well, as it grew mightily, one of the intriguing things about the epistle to the Colossians is that Paul is writing this magnificent letter to people that he's never met in person, but one of his trusted 
confidants named Epaphras has gone out from Ephesus and the word has spread and 90 miles east of Ephesus, the, the word has now traveled to that Colossae Valley. And there in Colossae, in Colossae this um, truth began to take root and what the epistle of, to the Colossians reflects is a growing, vibrant, warm understanding that brought relationships and understanding alive in many people's lives and hearts and created a current, a kind of a recirculating connection between the Apostle Paul and this growing and thriving church. And if we could summarize how these believers came to experience this sense of belonging, the, the, the simplest way I think would be to go back into that prayer of verse 11 that we saw where he prayed for them that you might, in chapter 1, verse 11, that you might come to know the fullness of the might of God's power that the knowledge of God would become real for you and that as you grow, you would experience this knowledge of God with all power. In other words, Colossians 1.11 tells us that there is a power God gives in the very receiving of the gospel. These believers all across the Colossae Valley that were receiving the gospel were experiencing the power of God. It's no less true today in this church. When you're hearing the word of God, when you're receiving the word of God in your daily time with the Lord, with the Lord you might not feel the power. But the fact is that the Holy Spirit has invested incredible, indescribably fruitful power within the revelation of his word. And when we find ourselves confronted with it, we get a picture that the, verse, the 12th verse tells us enables us to give thanks to the Father. Why? Because we are now heirs, we have an inheritance, of the saints in the light. This fact of being saints in the light is why that emphasis of verse 23 is so important that we continue in the faith. Why? Because it's the only way that we'll be stable and steadfast and not shifting away from the hope of the gospel. And so I'd like to think about it in this sense, that the completion that is pictured here is, a, is an ongoing adventure in the life of a Christian. In verse 28, the Apostle Paul sums up the purpose of presenting all these great truths about Jesus in this one very practical fact that is true for all of us. And that is that there is a completion or a bringing to maturity that is designed, that is embedded in the very power and nature of these truths we're hearing. When we hear that Jesus Christ eternally existed before all time with the Father, when we hear the Gospel of John, the, the, the John the Gospel writer explain it, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God in all eternity, the eternal Word, the eternal Logos, in all eternity, and the Word was God. Then together we realize Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their eternal existence is the source from which 
The great plan of salvation is secured in our souls. But the ultimate goal in redemption, the redemption through his blood, was not just the forgiveness of sins, but it was what verse 28 talks about here. And there's one word in the text of your Bible, if you look at Colossians 1.28, that is very significant for understanding why knowing Christ's fullness sets us free. And it's this word perfect. The older translations of the Bible had this word perfect, that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Would you shout the word perfect out, perfect? And, and, and I know when you said it, you're doubting me. You're thinking, no, you've got the wrong crowd here, Pastor. No, uh, and so we all do that. When we would read that in the King James Bible, we would say that we would present everyone perfect in Christ, just as we hear in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we all slap our face and say, well, that count me out then, right? But the actual word in modern translations translated in this way is a maturity or completion. And in a way, if we can grasp it from the origin of the word, we can, it can help us understand what Paul is aiming at. First, read the text in Colossians 1.28 in your own Bible, and I read it in the New American Standard Translation where it says, we proclaim him. Who do we proclaim? We don't proclaim ourselves. We don't proclaim our faith. We don't proclaim, it's not about my faith. It's about him. We proclaim Christ. Verse 28, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone complete in Christ. Those three words could echo through the corridors of time and they could lift your soul out of the depths of a time of internal frustration with yourself. So would you say those three words aloud with me? Complete in Christ. Could you say it with me? Complete in Christ. So the goal, in other words, the Greek word is teleos, and it's the Greek word from which we get our English word telescope. So we can easily see the connection. That telescopically, let's say, that the gospel, when, the, when we're hearing about Christ, the eternal reigning one, we're hearing God magnify and explain why it is that you can believe. You may say, left to myself, I can't believe. Oh, but Christ in his cosmic glory, who in whom all things hold together, who is the head over the body, even the church, that he might have the preeminence in all things. When that's a fact in your heart, and it's an unmovable rock of confidence, you can say, okay, telescopically, God, God's telescope of truth is pointing toward my maturity in Christ, my growing in a fullness of faith in a growth of understanding of the magnitude of who Christ is. Here's a simple way to think about it personally. We all know that one way to reflect on this truth of completeness is the phrase of Romans 8.29 that says, we're to be conformed to the image of his son, amen? Who's the firstborn among many brethren. Now, if we think of it this way, we might think of the fruit of the Spirit and think as a simple index of some of the personal problems that we all have. If you think of any of the nine examples the Paul, Paul used, certainly not an exhaustive list, but when he says love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, when we think of any of those, 
you can immediately think of yourself, and if you're honest, you can think of the opposite of all of those, can't you? Uh, what's the opposite of gentleness? Or what's the opposite of self-control? What's the opposite of peace? What's the opposite of joy? Well, the reason that's a helpful exercise is to realize that all of us left to ourselves have the capacity to stumble and slip around, right? So when we step back from it and think, okay, in Christ, there is a completeness of love. In fact, he puts it like this. In him, all things were created. It, it refocuses my vision. In him, all things were created, including you, including your capacities, including the way God designed you. And then we could say, he is the image of the invisible God. Would you read it aloud with me? Let's put these two together. This is an expression from Colossians 1, 16 and from Hebrews 1, 3, but it's describing the fact that Christ himself perfectly pictures God that Christ himself brings to you the full magnitude of what it means to know God. Read these two phrases aloud with me, if you will. He is the image of the invisible God, the express image of his person. So when we read that by him all things were created, the accent in verse 16 is on the visible and the invisible world. Now, that includes not only the things we can't see because of the naked eye can't see the vast reaches of outer space. That's true. And that doesn't just mean because the naked eye can't see the tiny infinitesimal magnitude of complexity in the human cellular structure. It takes a microscope to do that. But it also includes the invisible things about you. You see, Christ has created all things, the visible and the invisible, and the heart of this, of this powerful and profound text is to show us, above all, the wondrous glory of the nature of the Trinity, which reminds us of the full magnitude of God's love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the priceless facts of the identity of the eternal being of God. Now, a very quick summary. It's like a thumbnail sketch, but it helps us to grasp this because sometimes when we think of the Trinity, people get a little bit lost in the fog, and it's helpful to make this one distinction. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, identity of being, but distinction of person. In Colossians 1, verse 15 is accenting that distinction of person. That in all of the vast reaches of the infinity of, of past time, even before time existed, that Christ was always, the Son was always the image of the invisible God. But it wasn't until the incarnation, until the promise fulfilled to the angel brought to Mary, that there will be in your womb the Holy One who will be born of God and his name shall be called Jesus. That's when the eternal, infinitely powerful, sovereign God took upon him human, himself human flesh. So Hebrews 1 explains it this way in that little blue insert. The Son, who being the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his being. Now this little diagram, I think, helps to kind of bring it in a thumbnail sketch. 
And that is to understand the Trinity clearly is to understand that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternally existing together in that indescribably sublime union of love that Ephesians 1.4 signals when it says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. It was love was the motive. But the, it's also important to avoid errors about understanding the deity of Christ, that God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all dwell eternally together, and yet there's a distinction of person. And the, the simple way to think of it is like this. The Father is not the Son. The Father is God, but the Father is not the Son. Would you say with me, the Father is God. The Father is God. Now say the Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Son. Uh, secondly, the Son is God. Christ is God. Amen? But the Son is not the Father. And the Holy Spirit is God, but the Holy Spirit is not the Father nor the Son. This quick summary, uh, which obviously delves from many, many passages of Scripture, is very helpful to understand why this text, as we look at that 18th verse, as we look at that 15th and 18th verse, brings you the word firstborn twice. And uh, I think it's a good way for us to realize and step back and think of both the eternal existence of Christ the Redeemer and his entrance into human experience. And for all of that, for you and me to be able to say, my faith is in him. Notice in your text back in verse 15 to 19 that the word firstborn is used twice here and there is an important distinction between how they're used. Firstborn in verse 15 is, is referring to the rank of the eternal son. Not in the sense of a birth, but in the sense of the Old Testament use of the word firstborn. The Old Testament used the word firstborn as the first in rank. Now, even in the classic way God dealt with the Israelites, uh, there, were, there were births where God's choice of the firstborn was not in the order of birth. That's, uh, that's part of the significance of uh, the birth of Jacob and Esau, that God had a choice of the firstborn. It was not the physical birth or the order, but it was God's eternal choice. Well, in a sense, we look at eternally the Son of God and realize God had said of the Son, he ranks first among all. His eternal being, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is eternally deity, and the firstborn signifies that though creation is finite, the Son is infinite. And it's vital to know that because some cults portray a Jesus who is not eternal deity, and that is at the root of some false teachings. So when we understand, oh, it's real crystal clear from Scripture that his being is infinite, though creation is finite. Secondly, the sovereignty of the Son is eternal, and the supremacy of the Son is why all enemies were vanquished at the cross. There's no other being who could have fulfilled that redemption through his blood that we talked about. And it's why... The Bible says in Ephesians 1.21, these words, and would you read aloud with me that little section from the blue there? And he put all things under 
his feet. There are two personal pronouns there. The Father put all things under the feet of the Son. Would you read it again? And he put all things under his feet. Now, this brings us to the second use of the word firstborn, which has to do with a different aspect of his redemptive mission, and that is that there's another sense, firstborn in all of eternity, of course, because of the eternal deity of the Son. And on this planet, he never ceased to be God, even when he took upon himself humanity. So he was the God-man, constantly and continually the God-man. Now, we'll see later why that was important for the Colossians to hear that specifically, but First, I want to think about it for us and realize that what we have here is an understanding of a different understanding of the firstborn in verse 18. Read the text there in verse 18 that he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Now, the resurrection from the dead becomes a different aspect of this firstborn truth. He's firstborn in all of eternity because of his deity. But in the resurrection of Jesus, he does something phenomenal that anchors you and me in a faith that can never be taken from us. And um, Dr. H.A. Ironside about 70 years ago summarized the, the, the role of Jesus in the incarnation by saying he was alone as the incarnate son here in the world until, until, until the resurrection. And the Bible tells us in John 12, 24, that just like a corn of wheat is alone, it's singular, until it falls into the ground and dies. But when it dies, it will produce a harvest. So Colossians 1:18 says that now, not only is he firstborn as ruler of all creation, he's also firstborn from among the dead, and the firstborn, they're indicating that he's a prototype of the sons and daughters of God that will be born through faith in him. So it puts it in these words, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What did Jesus do in order for you and me to have the solid foundation that his conquest, his forgiveness, his cleansing, his new life can never be taken away from you. He destroyed death by being the dying lamb. He destroyed the one who had the power of death. Hebrews 2.14 tells us this is why he had to become a man. He was alone as the God-man in terms of being firstborn until death, burial, and resurrection. But in the resurrection, the Bible tells us Christ made the way so that by faith in him, we can become a part of the risen, the people of the risen Lord, the people who've experienced the faith of the risen Lord, the faith of the Son of God by which we have been raised from our internal death. And so this gives us a great way to think about why Jesus is first in everything. He is before all things, and he holds all things together. Now, as we think about that, I want to ask you to pray, because I believe many of us find ourselves in situations where that completeness 
could be so refreshing for us. Like a, like a scalpel, the, the spiritual surgeon, the Holy Spirit, sends this letter to remove the tumor of self-confidence, of self-focus, and remind us of the magnitude of what Christ has accomplished for us. When we see that, there, there is a, there's a capacity for us to say, Lord, I bring my brokenness to you. I bring that fallibility of my faith to you. I bring those places where I feel so incomplete, so even maybe out of sorts, and I bring it and I lay it at your feet. Now, I want to invite you for a minute to lift your hand in prayer if you are here today and there's some point of connection in your life where you realize, I truly see, I need to see Christ's supremacy more clearly in my life. Would you lift your hand? I need to see his supremacy in my life and his sufficiency in my life. And I accept, I receive from God the good news that he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Lord, as we lift our song to you today, I also pray that everyone here will be able to walk through the coming week with a renewed passion and worship in the simple assurance that in your eternal reign, you've given us conquest that belongs to us because we belong to the King. In Jesus' name, amen. Desire.